Hello, everybody. Um, welcome back to the Making Sense of podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by the rest of the team today, which is Bob. Hello. Heather. Hiya. Tonya. Hello. Bex. Hello. And last but not least, Antonia, our newest member. Hiya. Right, good, to, good, to, good to see you all on Zoom, your little squares. Um, so um, the last podcast, we, we talked about, we introduced the idea of core beliefs and um, we established what, what kind of core beliefs were, what, what, what these, the, these things were. And we gave a bit of a background into how, how the concept of core beliefs was developed within um, cognitive therapy. Uh, by a guy called Aaron Beck. So we also, we also one of the things I think we spent quite a lot of time talking about was how convincing core, the core beliefs that that we can hold about ourselves can be, and you know they can they can seem absolutely real and true to us because you know as we discussed they've often just been a part of our world or be, seem to be a part of us since as far back as we could remember anything you know since very early childhood, and the thing about these core beliefs is you know we've probably never really identified what they are or expressed those beliefs beliefs even to ourselves you know like even said them out loud um and let alone other you know tell other people so that they, they, they sort of just seem to become like almost secrets like this kind of hidden part of us so uh, you know for example like a core belief uh, uh, you know i'm not good enough can can feel like an absolute truth to somebody and and you know also something something to be very ashamed of something to hide and run away from and Beck talks about how how you know as we grow up we we sort of develop rules around this core belief and things that we can and can't do um so and also how we in, interpret the world so an example if if your your kind of core belief is oh I'm not good enough the rules are like oh don't try that because you'll fail or oh don't you know don't take a risk because people will laugh at you because you won't be good enough so that, that I think that's what we we hopefully established in the in the first of this two-part uh, podcast um, and also, you know, cobblers are very much a, a big part of those voices we we often hear in our heads when we talk to ourselves. I don't think I'm alone in this. Can you can you give me some some examples here, team, of those kind of those things you say to yourself? Um, yeah, totally. When I'm when I if I'm doing a bit of drawing or something, I'm just like in my head constantly. I'm going to ruin it. I'm going to mess it up. Okay. Yeah, I totally have. Um... You know, um, I, I can't do it. And the voices in my head will tell me that I can't do it a lot with my wallpapering and my painting and my decorating. <laughs> Amazingly, you probably don't know this, but it doesn't seem to stop, Tonya. Um, constantly decorating, which is amazing. So you must have, have to overcome that kind of voice a bit. Yeah, I think I do. I think because I, uh, if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So I just do it and uh, get, get over that. But it's a constant, uh, not good enough core belief is quite um a big one and it doesn't just happen around painting and decorating sure yeah i mean we kind of use perhaps smaller examples because you know they're easy to understand and and and, and for people to kind of connect with but i think th these core beliefs can be really feel really profound and really really hold us back in in you know what we can how how we enjoy life or what we can achieve in life um so so you know, they are extremely powerful in a negative sense. 
Um, in this podcast, I wanted to kind of dig a bit deeper. We're going to we're going to touch upon several different points across this podcast, I hope. Um, but let, I wanted to start off by thinking about digging in a bit deeper about how these core beliefs are formed. So, I mean, we, we if you think of a small child, we established last time it's that they're formed in childhood. But if you think of a small child team, what are the main ways that, that, that you know, children make sense of who they are? and how their world is. I suppose it would be their parents or their caregivers, um, the people who look after them and bring them up, um, and the way that they act, like you learn from the people around you as a small child. Yeah, and what are you learning? What, what, you know, as a small child, what are you learning from your caregivers or parents? So I suppose it's things like, like, what, how are they behaving? Like, how do they react um, to kind of like situations in their own life? Um, are they kind of quite scared of people themselves? Like, do they feel, you know, frightened? So I think it's like they're learning these sort of real primal emotional responses. Uh, yeah, I... I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I've um, I just did a thumbs up there at Bex uh, <laughs> on Zoom because um, you know I think uh, I really love that it, it, you know you're, you're getting emotional cues you're learning emotional responses I mean a you're learning all the kind of practical kind of being in the world walking stuff you know and going to the loo and you know things that 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 that, that children need to develop but I think there are a whole load of unspoken emotional cues or emotional responses that come out of that relationship. This is where I can also say my, one of my favourite quotes by Viktor Frankl, we are meaning-making machines. Uh -huh. So as human beings, we are constantly trying to find meaning in things. We're trying to work out how things are and we're trying to get a sense of what things mean. Um, and as kids, you know, we're trying to do that in a very kind of limited way because we don't have, you know, access to encyclopedias and we can't read and we can't, um, we don't have this kind of sophisticated knowledge of the world. So we have to make sense of the world uh, through a very, primitive is kind of um, the wrong word, but like through a very limited understanding. So if a kid has parents that constantly beat the child, like one of the things that the kids may then you know, one of the ways the kids may interpret that behavior is, is that my parents must be beating me because they hate me or I'm unlovable or, um, you know, I'm bad. Totally, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we, we also kind of last week rather childishly sniggered about Karen Horney's name again, but also talked about how she kind of emphasized that how children perceive events is also, you know, might not be what's really happening. It's just like... Uh, just to underline Bob's point about children have a kind of limited set of experiences or resources in order to um, interpret events. Because if you think about it, the more when, you know, if we if we think about our first kind of teenage crush or love affair or something, you know, you have to have a few of those to realise what's going on. You know, you have a few kind of disappointments or whatever and you, you kind of you learn something you learn about an interaction just through doing it and experiencing it but of course as a very young child a lot of what you're experiencing you just do not have the you know the the, the reference for okay what so it, I mean that sort of describes a home setting what other ways and Bob you touched on this last week actually or last at the last podcast um, but what other ways do kind of children 
you know learn about the world and kind of make 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 meaning of the world through school yeah friends school and friends sort of that's sort of when they start moving from the home into into the school setting and then teachers can be quite a big massive um influence on children and the way that they see themselves yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I, I had, um, when I was in primary school years and years ago, I'd done a maths test and I didn't cheat and I got it all right. But the teacher said that I cheated to the person next to me. And from there, I've never, ever been able to really do maths because I've just told myself, uh, just, I, just, I just, something happens. And I've never, never sat down to do maths again. And I always believe, learning about core beliefs and stuff, that that come from that teacher accusing me of cheating and I never did and she didn't believe me that's you know it's like trust being really shattered or something it's absolutely horrendous yeah and I hated maths forever <laughs> yeah and it's so I mean you, you know you're dead right it's like that that's such, such kind of important part of us understanding the world and um and, and likewise kind of extended family I mean it might not be related family but um, kind of the people around you as you're growing up, of course, you know, have the same kind of influences on how you understand the world. And, and the, the point I was referring to earlier, Bob, was in the last podcast, you sort of talked about, you know, a, a cultural kind of flavour of, of, of how you understood the world. Mm-hmm. Can you just repeat, or not repeat word for yeah, word? I mean... Um... I guess the first thing to say is like, I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm kind of saying this as the only Indian here, but I think a lot of people think that culture only really, only like ethnic folk have culture. And it's, you know, it's really not true. Like everyone has a culture, every family has a culture, every workplace has a culture, every, you know, school class has a culture, you know, culture is something that's kind of created and exists around the person. Mm. So I just wanted to quickly say that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's tons in, in Indian culture that I grew up with and a real classic one is just like this idea of like, what would your mother think? So I remember like, you know, growing up in a very Indian um, part of London and just like buying cigarettes from like the local corner shop and like quite often didn't even know the, the, the shop owners, but they just gave me this really scornful look that literally said, what would your mother think? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I remember like just grabbing my cigarettes and just like walking out, but feeling so ashamed of what I was doing. So I think that's a really classic one. Do you remember years ago, um, Bob and I have worked together for a long period, a uh, long time, but uh, do you remember years ago, I, I, I was kind of working a bit with a, um, a drug service that was based out west, which is, uh, you know, primarily working with Asian yeah. and and a lot a lot of the difficulties they had with with the with the you know the young people they're working with was very different to like a you know a drug service in inner city you know Pickham or something because it was a lot about the the staff I I you know I found it really hard to kind of adapt to because the staff are like what would their mothers think there was lots of kind of really like they're bringing shame on the family that. I'd never really experienced in, you know, kind of mainstream drug service before. There's a lot of stuff around family there and family not knowing and, and, and you know, sort of keeping, you know, keeping confidentiality was massive. Yeah. I think I just want to quickly say something else as well that I think, you know, in terms of it's a cultural thing, but it's also related to a kind of a culture within a context. And I'm involved in this kind of race and identity series outside of work. And we're, you know, exploring 
issues of race and we interviewed a black British woman. She's not of a Nigerian background and she grew up in like rural um, Yorkshire. And she was saying that when she was a kid, like her parents used to say this thing, I'm just like, you've got to be better than your white counterparts. You know, you've got to be like five times better, 10 times better and how common that was. Um, and, you know, this kind of idea of like, she grew up with this idea of like not being good enough, but also just like constantly having to be better than her, the, the, her white peers around her. So I think it's just interesting to look at like, you do of course have these kind of cultural things, but you know, it's, we don't exist in a vacuum and there's, setting which wrapped around that which was basically saying like to do well in the world as a black woman you need to like excel to a ridiculous degree and even then she encounters present tense lots of problems yeah brilliant i mean so the, what, we're, what we're establishing here or what i hope we're establishing that people can can kind of recognize is that you know the, the kind of beliefs about ourselves and the world that we have are quite formed in quite kind of complex ways. They're not just like, you know, by what your mum or dad did to your caregivers. Actually, the scope is a lot wider than that. And, you know, the impact of, of what could be sort of uh, negative messages, you know, sort of becomes something that is um, quite complex in a person's life, yes? Just to... But just to kind of sort of think of kind of concrete examples of it, can I ask you to, if we kind of recap on some of the core beliefs, do you remember that the, um, Judith Beck, uh, sort of who is Aaron Beck's daughter, identified that, that core beliefs tended to cluster in, in two different clusters? Do you remember what those were? Helpless and unlovable. Yes, that was it. So, you know, like basically she sort of said, look, loads of people have different core beliefs, but you can put them into a category of core beliefs around helplessness or core beliefs around unlovability. Um, I don't know if that's that's a real word, but that's what she uses. So there we are, unlovability. So if we recap about some of those kind of core beliefs about helplessness, um, one being like, I am powerless or I am vulnerable. Can, can, can you kind of think of some of the factors that, that might lead a child, you know, factors in the immediate sort of family and, and, and kind of you know, extended family that, that might lead a, a child to, to kind of take on those core beliefs? So I'm, I'm powerless or I'm vulnerable. I guess um, being abandoned, yeah. like having a family member walk, walk out on you and never seeing them again. Yeah, yeah being constantly let down compared to your siblings or being told you're not good enough you can't do this I think um yeah I mean kind of compared might make you kind of might lead to I mean it obviously just doesn't fit into a box but it might if you're compared constantly you might feel like you were not good enough but if you if we're talking about the fit the core beliefs of I'm powerless I guess you know um being left being abandoned being afraid and nobody helping you would install those those real feelings of i i don't i can't change this because you know you'll say you're 18 months or something you can't you literally can't change it um so it, it, it you know you can sort of see how those core beliefs of helplessness could start forming i wonder if also having like really for, for the unpowerless um core belief like having very dominant parents Oh, wow, yeah. did everything for you and basically kind of 
selected what clothes you were going to wear and what you were going to eat and you know you never learn to have your own autonomy yeah totally yeah well, I'm, well actually what you know well I've just been talking I was I'm also thinking of there's a sort of gendered thing to this because often girls are kind of really socialized to you know in being brought up to be told they're powerless they can't do things you know boys with constantly bored children are often told go on you can do this you know little tommy um whereas you know how how girls can and are often kind of brought up and socialized is this belief that they can't do things they kind of it's a kind of learned helplessness yeah i had three brothers growing up and it was very much like that they were allowed to do more than i was allowed to do yeah, yeah. so if if that's the case, what what do you what what do you think you can you know that it's likely that you can start believing about yourself? That they were always better than me, and they were I was less than them. They had more of everything, and, and that was okay because that's the way it was. So I didn't ever really question that. Yeah, I grew up with that belief. And also that you need a man to do everything and to make choices and be happy. You can't pay for your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think you know, just the, the the what we believe in and where that comes from is such a kind of, you know, I hate to repeat this word again, but it's such a complex thing that it, it feels difficult to unravel it. I think at times, so you know, that the gender comes in, um, your kind of cultural upbringing, and I think Bob's point's a good one. It does culture isn't just about you know ethnicity; it's it, it's a much wider people make culture. You know, it's very distinct. And I know, you know, if you if you grew up um, in, you, I think you talked in the first podcast, Tonya, about kind of growing up in a very heavily Irish culture and that having, you know, that instilling certain beliefs in you about how your life would be and how you how you could live. How well, yeah, I think I asked when we was talking earlier. Was that I think I took on their morals when I was young as well and thought that that's the way it should be, but I was never really happy in that belief. It's like weeds that get planted at some point and you don't know they're growing. I'm kind of saying this because my partner like cleared the front garden a while back and there's this big pile of like rubble that he never cleared. I'd say he, not we, uh, so I'm doing it. And like now there's like, it's just growing this like pile of weeds, you know, there's like weeds growing. They'd like kind of came from nowhere. And it's almost a bit like you don't, you know, like with some seeds, you know, obviously you kind of plant them and then they grow. There's just something very insidious to that weeds so that they just suddenly get, implanted without even realizing and then they start to root and grow and I just kind of think core beliefs are a bit like that yeah <laughs> thank you Bob that's really frightening um you can do something about it this week Japanese knotweed of the soul you'll never get rid of it um you can get rid of it right okay so you can kind of see how some of those helplessness beliefs might form and just 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 indulge me think about some of the you know I am unwanted I, I am undesirable you know how how might they be formed by a kind of child's immediate family mother father background from a parent saying I never wanted you <laughs> yeah. you're a kid uh, I remember, I mean, this is a bit horrible. I mean, I'm sure my brother would like be shocked at him saying this to me now, but I remember quite often as a kid, he's four years older and he'd kind of bully me. And he would quite often say like, mum, you're adopted. You know, you're not, you know, you're not mum's real son. And it was one of the most painful things that he used uh, to say to me because I felt like, you know, that was going to be the case. Heather's laughing very much at this. 
I am adopted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I was chosen. <laughs> well, that's a different way of looking at. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of very different. Kind of, uh, you know, that had that I'm sure had a huge impact on how you felt about the world. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I kind of. I was adopted. My daughter, my sister wasn't. So they they very much wanted to kind of make sure that we know we were we were equal. We were totally equal. So they went out like overboard to be very equal, very protective, very protective, and and yeah, make me feel that I was kind of loved. For a long, I think there's something about something you know where what you where you come in the family, and you could be an only child, or you could have siblings, is very important. And at what time, you know, your parents had you. I know it's, it sounds like an obvious thing, but, you know, I used to wonder why I was so different from my sister. Because I think, oh, we had the same parent, but we were born at really different times. And my, my sister's experience, my dad was alive and she experienced life as a child. It's a completely different one to me. And, you know, my mother was very depressed when she had me. She couldn't help it. That's what she was. So I think I experienced that as, you know, I'm, I'm unwanted because she couldn't love me. And, but my sister experienced quite the opposite just because you know my mum's life was a bit more financially secure at that time which is where I want to get on to but does that make yeah I know a few of you have, have children and I'm sure you kind of recognize that you know you've not just been the same mother all the way through you know you're a person that has has different things going on at different points in their life yeah, I, I that really resonates um, a lot of where I was in 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 my kind of mental state as to how old my children were and what they kind of went through and how they deal with life now. <laughs> those yeah. those effects, you know. Yeah, of course. And this that's a kind of quite a nice bridge to what I want to go on to next because one of one of the kind of criticisms. Or, or if you like, or what you know, not like a no, it's all wrong. But one of the critiques of of CBT and core beliefs, and this this approach of identifying, you know, personal negative core beliefs, and then that person changing, you know, going about changing those core beliefs, is that it, once again it sort of falls back onto this idea of personal responsibility. So it might mean that you know somebody can discover or learn about core beliefs they hold about themselves and expect to make changes in their lives but without really having the resources to do that so what what you know if you identify core beliefs and then went about changing them and couldn't do it because you didn't have the proper resources be they emotional financial or kind of you know psychological where does that leave where does that leave you feeling what do you think happens there often sort of back to square one because you couldn't do it yeah and yeah and it, I mean it's what's described as Beck's kind of depressive triad really it's like you try to do something you can't quite do it and it, it kind of reinforces that feeling of you know that negative feeling around that and then for, for people who've who tried to kind of get clean or you know give up drugs or alcohol and then then lapsed and gone back again it's a really horrible horrible place to be in but it might be that person's just not getting the right support. So I just wanted to introduce you to the. So I want to I want to introduce a couple of ideas around 
you know, public health here. And when I say public health, is there, can, can you just kind of confirm what that is? What's public health? Um, housing and doctors and making sure you have all these sort of right stuff in place for to support, for support. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just like the health of the kind of population of England. It's like uh, at kind of big public uh, national level, because you hear at the moment there's lots of talk about public health England and, and the, uh, you know, Tory government have just axed public health England. Well, it will it will exist in some other form. It will be called something else. But basically, it's like bodies or, you know, bits of the government that have to look after the whole health of um anybody living in the UK right now and of course you can see why that's such a you know complicated and very political idea about what 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 levels of help the government are obliged to give so there's there's a couple of kind of arguments about so public health is basically one approach is just to try to stop um kind of behaviors that 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 stem from psychological discomfort and you know when somebody's feeling upset psychologically discomforted um you know they'll they'll kind of tend to eat junk food or smoke or indulge in risky sexual behavior or or drink alcohol or take drugs there's a certain kind of group of um sort of behaviors that stem from psychological discomfort and one approach to public health is that you you stop kind of you you spend money doing campaigns telling people to stop smoking because it's bad for them they're going to die or you know stop you know, using heroin because it's bad for them, it's not, you know, they're going to die in the end. Um, the, then there's another school of public health thinking that says, actually, if you've provided people with decent, affordable, secure housing, meaningful-ish jobs or jobs that were kind of secure and enjoyable, that had kind of contracts and ability, enough time within their kind of work-life balance kind of to socialise, all the other public health problems would take care of themselves. You, you wouldn't have all this kind of comfort seeking behavior because people would actually be all right. And that, I mean, they're just two quite extreme ends of kind of thinking around public health. But I was, I was interested to know what, what you all thought of, of those ideas. I think that's like, seems like it's common sense, doesn't it? That if you've got a fulfilling life that you are able to manage and can afford, you know, to pay your bills, and are relatively secure then then you've already you know you're already got those reasons to feel to feel secure haven't you yeah i've got a name drop abraham maslow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, you know, running joke of the office is that I'm just a ridiculous Maslow fan and should have the hierarchy of needs tattooed on my body somewhere. Maybe I do. Um, but yeah, like if that basic stuff is taken care of, it's the universal basic income idea as well, isn't it? It's yeah. like if that kind of stuff is taken care of, then you just have, I mean, I think from just from a psychological perspective, you just have emotional energy that's available for other stuff rather than just thinking about where you're going to get money to buy your next meal and stuff like that or put food on the table for your kids or whatever so and what you know what I'm trying to do here is kind of link this so and I'm, I'm, I want to talk about a couple of, of of different things after from this point on but 
you know, just to, to connect it back to core beliefs, the traditional view of core beliefs would be like, yes, you form these views about yourself in the world because you were trying to make meaning as a child, which is nobody's debating. But they're there, they 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 mean you're personally flawed. You know, there's there's something in you that you need to change. Whereas um, there's a kind of there's a, there's a the psychological approach called a social materialist approach, and it doesn't really matter about you know how the name sounds or something, um, but they're they're saying something that's quite different. So I just wanted to ask you to kind of consider a few things around what they're saying. So social materialist psychology is, and just when I say materialist, can you just just kind of describe what materialist means in this? in this context, in this context. Kind of what, reality, things that are kind of real? Yeah, if you, if you Google, materialist is a kind of, can be a philosoph philosophical kind of, uh, associated with a kind of philosophical approach. And the, um, the definitions are really quite funny because they're things like, you know, materialist of things that are there things it's just a bit like things it just means things right so social materials just mean like things in the world and social material psychologists just say we don't exist in our own little bubble of just our inner kind of emotional psyche you know actually we're functioning in this world with roads and things and bollards and cows and dogs and motorbikes and whatever's in it you know, we're in this world and we have a relationship to this world of things. So social material psychology is it's mainly collected around this guy called David Schmale, which is like snail with a m. It's like David Schmale, who he was a psychologist and he taught psychology. At, you know, he's taught it to kind of university at university level in England. Um, and he, he died in 2014, kind of quite young. Um, I think he was in his 60s or something. But one of the really, really important points that, that Smale makes in lots of his work is he says that distress arises from the outside inwards. And I just wanted us to ask the, the team about that, especially in light of like the, the recent podcasts on anxiety and that. What do you think about this idea that distress isn't you and your core beliefs that you're shit actually comes from the outside and goes in? Can we just before that, like, can we at some point explain meritocracy? We, we can. I wasn't, I wasn't intending to go there, but... Because I just think it's one of those words that, you know, this is what... Like, you know, this is very much about, and I think it's one of those words that sometimes, you know, I've heard that for years and never really understood what it meant. So I think it might be worth just explaining that and then kind of linking that to what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, off you go. So yeah, a meritocracy is a political system in which a person achieves and gains in rewards based on his or her merit. So the supposed talent, their intelligence and, and basically sheer hard work. And in the system, if a person isn't achieving, it's because they're just not working hard enough and they don't possess the qualities that would make them successful. How does that make you feel? Frustrated, anxious, pissed off, can't get anywhere. Distressed. <laughs> and, I mean, and you're right, I mean, thank you for that, Bob, because it is like Smale's sort of saying, that kind of distress comes from the outside, not you generating, uh, you know, your own distress about not being a good enough person yeah. and that thing of what we were saying earlier about existing within you know within a context and if the context we live in here is one of like 
you need to work harder you should try harder and if you don't try hard enough you you won't you know you don't deserve um anything and then if you're not getting stuff it's because you're not trying hard enough like it's it's we're going to internalize all of those messages you know we're living in this context where if we're failing because it's just so fucking hard to live day to day because of like zero hour contracts and all that kind of stuff then it's going to be really tough to um to progress but then you're going to internalize that and think that it's your fault because that's the messages that are put and being put across by society I'll, I'll um in the handouts accompany this I'll, I'll, I'll there's a bit where i've kind of put a bit of the the manifesto from the social material psychology group but i won't go into it now but one of the things they say you know is that it's not a case of willpower it's not just a case of like, oh, well, you know, just try out like that meritocracy or you're just like you're not trying hard enough. And we know, don't they, through bits of our own lives and certainly people we've worked with that, you know, I don't know, you know, they just are faced with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle um, with, with having a really difficult start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, Schmel, he, he was a, he was, you know, he taught psychology. He was a working psychologist, and um, he kind of he. So he doesn't dismiss medication for mental health problems because he kind of recognised that it gives people a bit of a space to work out what's going on in their lives. And, you know, he, he also didn't dismiss therapy. He understood that that can be really helpful you know, providing kind of comfort that that you're not alone and other people are having these thoughts and feelings. And again, it kind of can provide a bit of clarification about helping people understand what's going on for them and just a basic basic support. But a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of resonance or something, a lot of, you know, um, parallels because it, one of David Schmale's earliest books was something called The Origins of Unhappiness. There you go. Um, and he, he he wrote this. He described that in, in the 80, in the 1980s, he was working as a psychologist. And this was at like the height of Thatcherism when kind of class and community communities were being really sort of brutally dismantled and changed. So Schmale was working and he, he just kept seeing more and more people coming to him who were really distressed and blaming themselves. And they sort of said that they were failures because they weren't adjusting to this new world you know pit is closed and I can't you know can't adjust to it it's like so and Schmel kind of saw that actually you know the, their distress was not about their own weaknesses but around you know social changes that they couldn't control that made them feel very helpless in this instance um this idea which you you seem to I see some nodding heads I'm guessing everybody's kind of you know we're on board. Yeah, we're on board. Yeah, I'm really bloody surprised if you're like, oh, well, I'd just like to point out that people just need to jolly well get a grip and pull their boots off and get on with it. You know? Work harder. Yeah, work harder. Um, so I see lots of nodding heads, so I think we're on board. But also, um, I was just going to ask you, you know, what are the few things that, because this, this approach very much, chimes that's why everybody's nodding but it very much chimes with what we're trying to do as a charity foundation for change and we don't you know we won't we run courses and we don't teach people about relapse prevention and uh you know all those kind of traditional subjects that were used to be taught in aftercare about addiction 
and what drugs do to you. Instead, we teach people a load of other stuff. We, we, we run groups that where people learn. We don't really teach, but where people learn about psychology and feminism. So what can you think of some of the things that, that you know, we include in that in those groups that could help people make sense of their 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 responses to the world? Um, I'll say from the from um, what, patriarchy is something that I sort of learned doing feminism course and um, actually when I think about it sort of I've probably grown up with patriarchy all my life because boys and men always come first they were the head of the house they had the more food what they said when and then obviously when I've learned more about patriarchy it's also a society it's a government it's, it's just everywhere so I think for me a massive thing of learning about why I feel less than is probably a lot to do with a patriarchy system in the home and in the government. And how did that, when you first kind of learned about this, how did that knowledge feel to learn about? It kind of, it kind of made me angry because <laughs> I, I've always sort of, I didn't, I didn't get it. I just sort of, I suppose, trusted what my people told me and just went along with that until I, wanted to question morals and certain stuff and then learning that I was quite angry that I've wasted so many so many years thinking that that's how it was listening to the patriarchy yeah. <laughs> and now oh do do our programs to make you really angry um Heather you're about to well I just yeah it's so I'm not so insipid but it's so just because you grow up with it you don't see it unless when you actually are told about it or go hold on a minute that's a bit unfair that you're being judged like that man's not being judged like that or or you know it's you can't unsee it once you've seen it you can't unsee it and it's everywhere every interaction every tv advert every the, the power dynamic is just it's there yeah. over, over everything in it, the whole of our culture and when we when we do, I'm just thinking of a day when we like you know train something like transaction analysis that that talks about you know parent adult child the ego states. I think once people see that, they can kind of in every subsequent kind of interaction, they're like, oh no, I'm being a child, or oh that person is being a kind of you know patronizing parental kind of figure. You know, it's it is it's it, it changes how you see all those day-to-day -day interactions which is what education should do by the way it's not just about learning kind of you know dead history it's about how you live your life um it's any other quote, well, i was just going to say it's that little quote i said last time but i'll say it again because i just love it it's that thing of like it goes without saying because it comes without saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah no. and you know when you start looking at where it comes from it's you know it's like taking the red pill in the matrix it's it's yeah. it's so revealing and mind-blowing and yeah like really depressing as well like you were saying Tonya of just like realizing and the thing and when you're talking the thing that really stood out for me is what you said about the people around you that you trusted yeah. you know and I mean you know and the thing is they grew up in that system as well so it wasn't like you know they're doing it consciously and they're kind of like just doing it to kind of like fuck with your head but it's just, it's this real huge systemic thing. And when you start to understand the system, you, you can't unsee it. When, just reminded me when, when, in the olden days, in the, in the, in the Elizabethan era, when we were back in the office and we lived in that, we worked in a physical office space. Um, Tonya and Heather used to be training the feminism course in the room next to us. And I think, the, you know, the kind of, fem, the, the day that kind of, 
explored patriarchy came on day one and you kind of hear next door you hear people going fucking hell and you hear this kind of these 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 kind of expressions of like what the fuck are we you know like coming from next door it would always be really great really like the indignation of like how the hell have we not learned this before why had no one told us about this earlier you know <laughs> great learning like when you learn something really exciting it's a really quick response isn't it? it's like why didn't somebody tell me about this shit earlier fucking you know so yeah love that it's kind of it you know it's so alive anyway just i went to just just kind of round it up a bit by saying so this i mean you know this idea of social material psychology and please once again don't get too hooked up on the kind of way that sounds as a, a kind of fancy approach because it's saying something that i think we can all understand understand understood we can all understand and um it's been picked up quite a lot recently that idea is um kind of coming to um currency again or it's been talked about and I don't know, I'll ask the, the team, have you recently come across SLS as a description of people's lives? You come That's across- like some kind of boy band or something. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like that. JLS. JLS, you your age, Bob, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Late 30s, you know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it sounds really horrible and it, it's not. Um, it sounds really betrayal, but have you, you heard of people talk about shit life syndrome? I've never heard that one. No. Okay. And it is a thing, people. It's not just something I've made up. Um, shit life syndrome. It, it was a term kind of coined by um, physicians, like so doctors, like GPs, but also like doctors in hospitals and like, you know, kind of mental health doc doctors, sort of doctors as a broad term, both in the UK and in the US to just describe people who come and see them with a whole variety of complex um, health, physical health and mental health issues. And doctors were just so overwhelmed because they knew they couldn't do anything because it's not really about the physical and mental health issues. It's about the life that people were stuck in. So uh, there's lots of articles and I've, I, I've attached a link to one of them on the um, web page that accompanies this podcast. And it was um, an article that um, was written by an English journalist in 2018. And she, she won like the Orwell kind of journalism, George Orwell prize for this. And it was, um, the, the article was about oh. shit life syndrome in Blackpool. But, you know, it could be any of those towns. And it, as again, once again, you know, it sounds horrible and dismissive, but it was doctors kind of acknowledging they were seeing people who were just trapped in a cycle of poverty and poor physical and psychological health. And they could kind of see that people had little or no education, they didn't have any training, there aren't any jobs available for people who haven't got qualifications or training or anything that is available are the kind of zero hours contracts. So, you know, people can't really find meaning because they're just you know surviving day to day and um you know just surviving takes all the energy and emotional resources that they have and I think Bob just made that point earlier and also you know people turn on the tv or go to social media or you know go to Westfield or something you kind of see a a you know a kind of world that you'll never exist 
And it, again, it's about this meritocracy. The idea is like, oh, you should work harder, then you can have all that stuff. But realistically, if you're on a zero hours contract and your life's just shit and you're eating junk food and drinking booze, it's not going to happen. You just, it's that rabbit, um, rabbit in a wheel, hamster in a wheel. Um, and people just can't get out of it. And doctors are just like, sorry, you've got shit life syndrome. Mm. Can't do anything. And it, it's really deeply depressing. I mean, I just kind of end on a downer. Um, but it, it's such a kind of real way of, of, I think, describing how core beliefs that a person might have are so impacted by kind of social and ec economic environments. And, you know, if you've got a shit life, you probably live in a rented flat that's shit. You probably got black mold that's shit. You probably, you know, it, it's kind of never ending. And how does that, how, how do people break out of that? And I guess as well, like you were saying, you're constantly bombarded with images of, of, of how you should live. And, you know, having that nice house or that new toaster or matching things or, you know, a nice, nice things and it's like you you're when you're worried about whether you're going to spend money on electric or milk you can't afford what color toaster you fucking have in the house you know what i mean yeah and i think you know i mean we we will pick up kind of more positive responses on different podcasts i don't want to just go oh you know it's all doom and gloom because i think the way there are ways of of working with this but i just want to bring back to the point when you say to somebody in that circumstance oh you just need to change your core beliefs you can kind of see how offensive that is. You know, it's like, yeah, right. You know, just snap out of it. And just look in the mirror every morning and tell yourself that you're beautiful. Yeah, exactly. It's it's patronizing. It's, you know, it's absolutely horrific. So um, I think, you know, there, there are ways of, 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 of shifting, you know, how you understand the world and they're very much around education, I would say, but, just telling somebody they've got negative core beliefs is not particularly helpful. But... I think it's a really good point because I think like telling them that they've just got core beliefs is you focusing on just someone's mental health and not paying any attention to their context, which is obviously huge. And I think it connects back to this public health thing we talked about earlier, because, you know, if you live in a shit house, and you've got a shit, you know, shit job and no job and you're eating shit food and there's mold and, you know, of course you're going to have health complications as well. Like all of this stuff is so interlinked, yeah. but it's a thing that no one is talking about because, like, you know, it's going to cause like, it's going to require such a massive financial investment to provide housing and to provide jobs. And, you know, in a way it's easier to not acknowledge that and to, make it just the fault of the individual like it serves a purpose that has a function and i, and I know this is like I, I, you know i feel like my blood's pumping now I, I know it's one of the reasons you know bob and i wanted to create foundation for change because we got really frustrated at how kind of more orthodox approach to kind of drug and alcohol treatment were because once again it was all that focus on the individual it's like oh you're the addict there's something wrong with you well, we're not denying that people, you know, have addiction and have, you know, very personal experience of that. But it's all the other stuff around that that, you know, the circumstances around that that, um, you know, I personally think is really relevant and interesting. And when people sort of talk about holistic approaches, you know, this should be the holistic approach, the sort of social and economic, mm. uh, you know, environment. 
I guess this is a little bit of a teaser for next episode as well, because I think <laughs> one of the things that, you know, that people experience when they go on our courses and learn about this kind of stuff, and, you know, and I hope there's other places where people can do that as well, but it's the sense of being able to realise, like, there are loads of things that you may have felt shame, ashamed about that aren't your fault. That up until this moment you had internalized and personalized and taken it all upon your own poor shoulders yeah. and actually there's this thing that we just see consistently where people start to like get this real huge big picture perspective and realize like i don't need to take responsibility for that i don't need to own this i don't you know it's it's so liberating yeah, yeah, yeah. um and I you know like people sorry just really quickly but i think feminism change is a really good example of that like it's six weeks it's a day a week, but you know, women come out of a day, let alone a six week course, like of a day, a different woman from when they went in at 10.30 that morning. You know, the stuff is, it's fairly simple in a way. Yeah. And that was an advert on behalf of, <laughs> you know, this is why we do what we do. I know. I was just actually talking, gonna, you know, I, my mum's really, um, well, she's 101, she's very old. But, you know, she kind of grew up in a Victorian era. My grandma was definitely a Victorian. So my mother fears workhouses, right? She's like, you know, because she lived most of her life before the welfare state. So um, I was having a chat months ago with Bob, and I kind of realised something, that I have inherited uh, this kind of fear of workhouses from my mother as a fear of poverty right it's you know it's, it feels very kind of real but so that's kind of my mother that's how I grow up but also I you know I I can experience shame at being poor really quickly you know it just you know being in a world that's constantly saying oh you should own your own house or you should do this you know it's kind of how quickly those are core beliefs that I also inherited but also then you pile on a load of other stuff about the what what how the world expects you to be and you know quickly it, it can feel very shameful and Heather's cat's attacking her now on her. <laughs> so I think you know um just just on that note are we good to You've been very quiet today. Do you like to say goodbye, everyone? Bye-bye. Bye. 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 We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.